Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual for a Tuesday episode, our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren, is here with us. Hugo, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Bradley. I was, um, God, does that sound strange in your headphones, by the way? Um, yeah, it sounds like a little, There's like, like a lot of like air. A smoker's cough or something kind of sm- edge to it, you know? Should we keep this in? Because due to your, your all-natural approach to podcasting? Yeah, I don't do think the listener's mine. Okay, all, all right. right. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um... Bradley, we're going to start a little light today because you, well, it's not light, although it has a light, like, inspiration, but you were, you were, you wanted to talk about the Kentucky Derby a little bit. Yeah. It, well, you're not a horse not, racing guy. No, I'm, right? I'm not. And so I, I guess here's the things, but I grew up, so my grandfather, one of them was a, they were both gambling addicts in different ways, but, but my mother's father um, loved the track, right? And so he was always either at OTB or at the actual tracks itself, Belmont, Aqueduct, and uh, Yonkers. And in fact, one time, I've heard the story that he and his friends were going to Yonkers. They got into a car accident. There were injuries. They didn't go to the hospital until after the eighth race. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's like such a like a throwback because even though horse racing obviously still exists and everything, they, that kind of that, – that compulsion to, to like whatever. You know, I, I read that in 1950, the three most popular sports in America, what do you think they were? Boxing, horse racing, and baseball. Wow, very good. Well, I mean, it's, this, kinda, is, this is your wheelhouse. Yeah, <laughs> and you also kind of kind of made it obvious. Okay, so your um, your your grandparents were super into. Yeah, so here's the deal. So I, I grew up going to the track, okay. right? Uh, and then in Florida, Gulfstream, if my grandparents were down there, so I, I've always had kind of a fond association with it f- for that reason. Um, but you know, this weekend when I saw the Kentucky Derby happen. I started asking myself, like, you know, is horse racing right? And I think obviously what's changed in my life over the last half a dozen years is for the first time ever we have pets, right? We right. have a dog. We have a cat. Uh, my daughter's a vegetarian. So I, I think the way I look at these issues has started to evolve. Um, you know, I think we all condemn dog racing, right, as something that is uh, inappropriate and wrong because we know and love dogs. And so it, it feels tangible right. to us. I'm not really sure why horses is any different. Mm-hmm. Um, now, look, there are some jobs in the industry, so I understand why people want to be able to to keep doing it. How uh, aware are you of like like the innate cruelties of horse racing? Is it is it? I'm not. I mean, not that much. But at the end of the day, I guess the question is: Do we treat animals as our workers and our subservience, or are they just existing alongside of us? Right. So, look. Before the steam engine and the Industrial Revolution, you used animals for actual creating energy and, and power and everything else. Obviously, you don't need that now. So what's left, really? There's horse racing. There's animal testing, though I think that's evolved generally in a, in a halfway decent way. Um, you know, and that's it. And then the really crazy shit like dogfighting and cockfighting and whatever. But um, so I, I just don't know if the next evolution shouldn't be getting rid of horse racing, and to the extent that if, if you love your dog and you love your cat, how is it any morally different um, to, uh, to watch, you know, to, to not support horse racing? And look, I understand that the ultimate, ultimate would be then everyone would become a vegetarian, which, by the way, I think climate change may ultimately mandate that anyway. Right. Um, but, you know, as my thoughts continue to evolve, this was the first time that I saw, I didn't watch the Derby, but I just saw that it was happening, and for the first time I was like, you know, maybe this shouldn't be happening. Yeah. Well, it seems like we're a long way off from that, like being banned or, or, I mean, it's obviously been dropping in popularity for a long time, although the big events like the Kentucky Derby in some ways seem as big as ever. Well, events are events. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder where horse racing is on the 
like on the arc of this sort of cultural reform? Because I agree with you. I think we probably will go to a like a vegetarian diet, like largely, um, maybe even in our lifetime. Um, yeah. But the question is, is like, where is horse like so mechanized farming? The that that kind of like is is like pretty brutal um, in terms of treatment of animals. Obviously, yeah. I mean we're killing them. Um, I wonder where horse racing factors yeah, look, in that. Is it as bad as some of the stories about how, like, for example, cows or chickens are, you know, kept in, in really, really inhumane conditions? Or is it as bad as, you know, killing animals to test makeup or um, dog fighting or cock fighting? Like that? No, it's, it's not as bad as any of that. Um, so, so maybe it's a sort of a lower level priority. Um, in fact, we we did some pro bono work for a couple of years for Mercy for Animals, which is a, a strong animal rights group. And I don't recall them ever talking about horse racing, although I was only tangentially involved in it. But look, there was the effort in New York City to ban the horse carriages in Central Park that ultimately succeeded in that the carriage usage now is extremely limited and the ways the horses are treated is, is much different. Um, in fact, Chris Coffee from here ran that campaign, so congrats to Kiff, Chris. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that and we're actually also running a campaign to put wolves back on the endangered species list. Yeah, no, we've Trump talked about that on, yeah. on the podcast. Although I have to say, I met Deb Howland, the Interior Secretary, on Thursday. Uh, I was at an event at the White House, and I was going to maybe bring it up to her. Um, and the person I was with brought up mobile voting first, thinking, you know, reservations might be a good place for that. And she was so dismissive uh, of mobile that, voting. Yeah, like just of just any of interaction that I didn't even get to wolves. So she just like basically kind of waved her hand and muttered something and walked away. So did, did, I am officially unimpressed with the Interior Secretary. <laughs> oh my God, too bad. But anyway, you know, I, I I think that we're probably at a point where I don't think horse racing is number one on the agenda. But you know, it may not even take legislation. It may just be that lots of things die out simply because the culture changes and the economics change. And you may get to a point where just horse, horse tracks can't stay in business and maybe you still have the big three, you know, or maybe you don't. Are you um, – you're not vegetarian yourself. I know that. But I'm do not. You, do you ever, have you ever gone like a week or a yeah, month? Yeah. You know, I, I try sometimes for, for Abby. And we eat a lot more vegetarian now right. because, you know, no one wants to cook two dinners every night at home. Right. Um, so – you know, I, I think I could do it, but with that said, I, I morally would like to do it. But um, you know, my my love for too many kinds of food has has so far won out. And does does do you get into arguments with Abby about it or, or no, discussions? No, to, to, to her great credit, she doesn't judge anybody else for it. She mm -hmm. just it's what she wants to do. It's what she wants to do, and and we've you know supported and facilitated that, and I think she's okay with that. Um, all right, in our uh, distinctive firewall pattern, we're now going to switch hard into a completely different topic and talk about the LSATs and the, I guess they're just considering uh, the possibility of not requiring standardized tests for entrance into law school. Yeah, so the, the reason it kind of struck me was on, on Friday I had lunch with my political consultant group and we were talking about kind of the- and You meet in person too. In person. Just once, well, we try to have lunch once a month. I'd say I maybe make it 35% of the time or something like that. And how many people are in that? Five. Five, okay. So maybe at three at any given moment. We had four actually, which was good attendance. Um, <laughs> And we were talking about the fact— Did you uh, eat meat? Uh, I had sushi, so I had fish. Um, okay. good, good sushi? Where'd you go? It was fine. It was someplace in the Upper West Side. Not only—because oh, they all live up there. And by the way, they told me the name of a restaurant, which was not the name of the restaurant. So I kind of like was wandering around in the rain on Amsterdam and like 
81st, and then I finally said, well, well the sushi restaurant seems like it's where it's supposed to be, and that's what it was. And I'm like, you guys know this place isn't called Haru, right? Um, they're like, oh, right, it changed. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but anyway, so we were talking about that, and then the next day in the Journal of the Washington Post, wherever it was, I, I saw the LSAT article, and just started thinking about it. And I'm not sure what the answer is here, but like on one hand, dismantling the meritocracy, I would say, is, is very bad, right? Because um, this country, in my view, succeeds because we are able to innovate and do things in ways that other cultures just don't allow for. And that creates jobs, that creates opportunity, it creates economic development, it, it, it changes the country and changes people's lives. And that's the crux of, of who we are as Americans. And so a meritocracy is very much as necessary to facilitate all of that. And, you know, part of me thinks like, okay, we'll all take a test and, you know, that, that's a fair enough way to determine who goes where. Um, with that said, we also know that tests have a lot of cultural biases, you know, in them that probably discriminate against people of color, uh, people of lower income. And so you also don't want to say, well, meritocracy, if it's not really a meritocracy because the, the game is rigged, um, that's not okay either, right? And so the question is, how do you make it fair without destroying kind of innovation and success and everything else? And, right. it, and it seems to me that you just have to run two tracks at the same time, right? Which is like take take New York City, the, the specialized schools. Right. Um, you know, there's been this effort for a long time to try to get rid of the test uh, to enter Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and others. And Tough Strategies has run the campaign to preserve the test. Okay. Um, so Who, Who's in favor of preserving the test? Like, who's your client on that? Uh, every single person who uh, – Ronald Lauder is our client, but okay. any single person who has – basically ever gone to Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, right. any of those schools, they are for keeping the test. How would they pick, uh, no how matter would they, where, what, where they are on the, on the political spectrum or, or the ethnic spectrum. How would they pick students if there was no test? They just randomly assign them? No, it would just become, you know, uh, it would just become sort of like a college application type thing. And they would say, we have, th we have to have this many of each race oh, I see. Okay. here at the right. school. And that's how they would do it. So look, Ruining Stuyvesant or Bronx Science, like, I don't really see the point of that because they're producing tremendous graduates who go on to do great things. But why can't we have more elite high schools that maybe don't require the test, right? right. So, so what Lauder's been pushing for is the creation of 10 new elite high schools, two in each borough, um, that would not require the test. So you don't have to destroy what already exists, but we can create more than that. But look, there was an effort by de Blasio at the end of his term to get rid of the gifted and talented program altogether. Um, which, again, is sort of the notion of in a meritocracy. I think the people who support that would say gifted and talented is still sort of biased in some way. On the other hand, you have a lot of parents who you know, live in the city, can't afford to send their kid to private school, but you know, really want to be able to, to, to stay here and send their kids to public school. And the gifted and talented program is what allows that to happen, right? And these people who generally pay taxes, are not creating any sort of societal problems or issues, they're not committing crimes, they're not requiring any government services. So they kind of cost nothing and they add a lot of value. And you would drive them all out of the city. You know, Eric Adams and uh, the mayor and David Banks, the ch new chancellor, to their great credit, has shut that down very quickly. Um, I, I think they're really doing a great job on education. But, you know, it gets to the overall point of I don't like the idea of dismantling the meritocracy because I do think that it is what helps ensure that we as a culture um, achieve things that other other cultures cannot at the same time to refuse to recognize that there are biases and issues also just seems kind of stupid so to, to me it, it's got to be a case of more right well it is kind of the, the these reforms often take on a kind of all-or-nothing approach 
I mean, I'm always interested when people talk about like schools that have no homework, you know, and you're like, look, I think like burdening kids with tons of homework is a bad idea. But on the other hand, like what exactly is school with no homework? Well, so, uh, <laughs> so I don't know if you guys look. So when we were looking at kindergarten for right. Abby, um, you know, Harper and I generally went together, but sometimes we kind of like our schedule would divide and conquer. And there was a school in Chelsea and I'm kind of like, you know, half paying attention, half not wondering if I can look at my phone, whatever. <laughs> and, and But I kind of the more that they're talking, I'm realizing the entire curriculum through the eighth grade is taught through blocks. 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 Through and eighth grade? Yeah. And there was literally a point where I was like. Wait, those little like mathematical blocks? No, no, to, like, like building blocks that you play with. And okay. I was like, is everyone here fucking with me? Is this like <laughs> some sort of really big practical joke? And like, no, that was the way the school worked. And then eventually uh, on the tour, when they were going up the stairs, I ran down the stairs and got out of there. You did? Yeah. You did, we, you once leave. I heard about the blocks, we weren't sending our kid there. And you got your wife out of there too with you? She wasn't there. Oh, but I see. I, she, she did, yeah, once I explained it to her, she was you know, yeah, on the same page. So, you know. Um, but that, so it's it's interesting, those, those kinds of schools. And then the other one is um, uh, later in life idea or, uh, uh, phenomenon. But the the job interviews are a waste of time or bad or biased. You know, that, that argument that, like, you shouldn't bother with job interviews? Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Look, we... Uh, I feel like that's part of the same thing, which so is like... I, again, I, th- I think you could do a more approach. So so we ran a campaign for a AI HR company based here in New York City called Pymetrics okay. that basically says, look, rather than relying on the traditional network of resumes, right. you can use AI to find what people in what industries have the same skill sets to right. do whatever that you're looking for. And it may be in a totally different industry. Right. Um, and they have an algorithm that really can account for um, race and ethnicity and gender mm-hmm. and everything else. And we passed a law in the New York City Council kind of requiring people to, to use that approach. Um, it was heavily opposed by the New York City Partnership to the point where um, the head of the partnership managed to get us fired uh, by leaning on some investors in the company, uh, and they thought that would shut down the bill, and then we decided we would just do it for free. And we did, and we won. So anyway, but but look, you know, and, and think of the LSAT specifically, the kind of person who succeeds and excels at a law firm is someone who really, really colors inside the lines, is the most conventional inside-the-box thinkers we have. And the LSAT probably is a pretty good predictor of those kinds of people. Right. Uh, I didn't, by the way, I didn't do that great in the LSAT. I, I got into law school because my grades were good in college, and they gave me an interview, and I went out there and talked my way in. Uh, I did fine, but not certainly not great. And guess what? I was in no way cut out to work at a law firm. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I am not sure that if, if you are a law school and your goal is to send students to law firms, um, which you can debate whether or not there's any societal value in that, but if that's your goal, I, I can see why the outside has has merit. Um, there was a column by Ezra Klein in the New York Times this weekend. I, I didn't know, see it. I, I know you didn't. That's why I'm telling you about it. Um, uh, but the headline kind of says it all. There's a couple of data points that are interesting. That TikTok may be more dangerous than it looks. Um, it, Ezra ran through a, a, a couple of different sort of points, but but the the most significant was that basically um, the you know what what people see can be so manipulated by algorithms and particularly given um, the Chinese ownership of yep. the of, of the company that you'd be able to, you know, with an election coming up and stuff, put a lot of divisive content, feed it into yeah. the I mean, by the, the way, I, you know, there aren't many times I say this, but I thought Trump was right about TikTok when he said we're going to force a sale of it. Uh, and you saw American companies ranging from Microsoft to Walmart being interested. 
and then in typical Trump fashion, there's no follow-through execution on anything, and it just fell apart. Well, I think it, it I mean, but it, it was sort of in a protean state still when Biden took over, and, and then they just abandoned it. Look, I, I think Biden overall is doing it. I'm one of, that, one of those 37 percent or whatever it is that, that would give him a high approval rating. But You are. Uh, yeah, I, overall, I certainly would. Okay. Um, but their work on tech has been abysmal, um, whether it's protecting kids by by finding ways to better regulate TikTok or Facebook or Twitter or moving forward on ideas like autonomous vehicles or, or drones uh, or AI um, across the board. Um, they have failed. And not only have they failed, but like Pete Buttigieg, who's the Secretary of Transportation, who I was really excited about him coming in. Right. He's like, okay, here's this young guy who really gets technology. So we'll start to see regulations promulgated on autonomous cars, on autonomous trucks, on delivery drones, all these things that the DOT has jurisdiction over. Look, maybe it's all in the works and they never talked about it, but from what I can tell, he's doing nothing. Right. So um, while uh, I, I would not say that um, it hasn't moved because Biden sort of has realized it's not a good idea, Biden, I don't think, has ever thought about it one way or the other. What's, do you have a household policy on TikTok with your kids? They're they're on it. Right. Uh, you know, we have tried and failed so many different household policies on on social media uh-huh. um, because you know we ban stuff for a while and then it always kind of pops back up. It's sort of like prohibition or whatever it is. Like I, I just <laughs> at least in my family, um, it's not really doable. And do you find TikTok in, in like? specifically bad? No, or like- it seems to me, and again, I, I don't watch TikTok unless Lyle shows me a, a video. Or what does he like show that. you? Like what kind of stuff? Like stupid, funny things like people. Sports stuff? or Yeah, like or no, not games? even. He likes to watch like there's some guy who like chugs like eight gallons of Mountain Dew at a time or something like that. He likes to watch that kind of stuff. Wow, what does that do to you? I suspect not very good. He's a pretty big guy. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, but at least based on what he shows me on TikTok and what he's watching, it does not seem as destructive as Instagram, which is, you know, promoting these images of, of girls and boys' bodies uh, that are so incredibly unhealthy that it has led to an epidemic of eating disorders. Right. I just I'm curious. I, I find that that TikTok really is an information source for my girls in the way that like that Instagram is not. Instagram is kind of as you say, it's just a kind of comparing postcard images of each other's lives and yeah. kind of silly in that regard. But the but TikTok, it feels like they get news and they get like perspectives on climate change or on Roe v. Wade or things that yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, there is a substantive element. Look, I've got a guy at the Mobile Voting Project who spends most of his day promoting mobile voting on TikTok because my view is unless your kids become passionate advocates for it, I'm never going to be able to generate the political will to overcome the status quo to actually do it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that's the case, uh, more so than probably other platforms, because our kids certainly would laugh at the idea of using Twitter or Facebook. Um, they use Instagram, but I think they're kind of aware of the, the harms it has. Uh-huh. Um, so, therefore, the default becomes TikTok. Do they share stuff between them on TikTok, or is the age difference Age not? difference is too much. Right. And, and, you know, um, I, I think that, you know, I, I assume this is typical in a lot of families, which is they were close when they were little. It's kind of pulled apart now, and then they'll get close again when they're older. Uh, Meta has several new VR headsets coming into the market over the next year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them uh, is called Project Cambria and is, quote, more focused on work use cases and eventually replacing your laptop or work setup with improved ergonomics and full-color pass-through mixed reality to seamlessly bend virtual reality with the physical world. Sure. Um, yeah. Now, do you see, like, people, like, here at Tusk walking around with headsets on in, like, the, you know, looking out of the next year or so, two? So, so my instinct would say no because it looks stupid. Right. However... 
AirPods also look stupid, and mm-hmm. 100, I would say we're probably close to 100% adoption of Air, AirPods here at Tusk Holdings, right? You know, these white things sticking out of your ears, and yet they are so convenient right. and so useful right. that everyone across the board has said, you know what, fuck it, we're just going to wear these things and look stupid. And because everyone wears them, you don't look as stupid because it now becomes the norm. I think that'll be true with VR headsets too. Really? Yeah. I mean, the, it's a big difference, obviously, between little AirPod in your ear and, like, yeah. sticking some big mask on your face. Yeah, I, I think the adoption will take longer. Um, but ultimately, people shift to new technologies when what they can offer is significantly better than what they have right sure. now. Like, one of the reasons why I think the Oculus, in some ways, is not as successful is, you know, I remember when Lyle got it. He loved it at first and did a bunch of things on it. And then just the the available stuff to him that interested him was, was pretty limited. Right, hit these walls. Yeah, right. and then he just kind of stopped using it. So, But I think if you are able to provide specific utility and content that people want, they will they will adopt the uh, practice. Do you have any friends who, like, already swear by them or talk yeah. about them? No. So no it's not a- at all. <laughs> I, I, it's funny. Most of my friends do not work in and around tech, and I think when I talk about things like the metaverse, they have no fucking idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, Clubhouse. Remember Clubhouse? It's still around? Do you, uh, well, not only is it still around, it just closed a Series C that values the company at $4 billion. I don't get it. Do you not get it? So, I mean, I've, I've done events on Clubhouse, okay. so I have experience with right. it. Right. It's a bad use of time, right? So, like, you know, you do these events, and it's kind of labor-intensive because you're also moderating it, and crazy people are always trying to get into the questions. And so, it's like, it's, it's a decent amount of work. And at the same time... You know, when it's over, you know, the team says to me, that was amazing. We had 282 people listening. I'm like, yeah, but but I was on CNBC earlier today and 3 million people were watching it. Like, why would I spend time for 282 people? Now, occasionally, maybe those 282 are so influential and whatever it is that it's, it's actually worth trying to reach them. Um, but but overall, yeah, I've used Clubhouse a, a, enough times to never want to use it again. You don't see any aspect of it that could be improved or tweaked or put points us in the right direction? Because if you look at the the potential anyway for sort of Twitter to decline as a kind of um, I mean the media is in love with it even though they hate it but they love it and oh, it makes them feel validated right they're relevant otherwise these people who only report on what other people do you don't actually <laughs> do anything you just complain and write about other people it makes you relevant but it feels like there's an opening for a new platform that that has a more substantive more more affirming view of Maybe, the culture but I, I Could would that argue be Clubhouse? I, I would argue Twitch has sort of filled that mm-hmm. that void. I okay. think YouTube, to a certain extent, fills that void. Right. Um, Discord, you know, right. like um, I don't know if either of your kids are on the debate team, but but Abby is, no, and they're not on the debate. They team. during COVID, all of the debates from all of these different schools around the tri-state area were all done over Discord, um, and so that's substantive. And that worked well. Yeah. Did yeah. You, I mean, in the sense that, that every time I asked, you said it did. Um, all right. I read about a study. Um, uh, on politics, I'm going to read the conclusion or the sort of overview to you. Just want to get your reaction. Yeah. Um, Americans' hostility towards political opponents has intensified to agree not fully explained by actual ideological polarization. We propose that political animosity may be based particularly on partisans' overestimation of the prevalence of extreme egregious views held by only a minority of opponents but imagined to be widespread. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And, and it kind of touches on something I was thinking about the other day. So a member of the House who I'm friendly with, um, who, you know, consistently solicits me for money, but he's, he's helpful on mobile voting and stuff like that, um, sent me a text saying, oh, can you give the money to this Wisconsin Senate race because it's really important. Obviously, he told the candidate he tried to raise some money for them, right? 
and, and he said, you know, it's our last chance, and if we want to hold the Senate, and I wrote back and I said, there's no we here. There's no our here. Like, I'm an independent. Uh, I don't believe in at all in the political parties, but, but beyond the fact that I choose to do that, I don't think anybody should choose to do that, right? Because having worked with these people, so Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, whatever it is, they don't give a fuck about you. They don't know who you are. You're only useful to them in terms of money and votes. And no matter what you believe that they're saying, if their self-interest required flipping on a dime to the opposite position, they would do so in a heartbeat. They stand for nothing. So the idea that you're going to pledge your fealty and then start getting angry at other people and causing yourself distress, emotional distress, based on a team that that could care less about you and it's just using you, um, to me, is nuts. Um, I sent you a story over the weekend uh, from the UK about... uh, uh, the move there to um, force landlords yeah. um, to rent their vacant uh, storefront properties. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. I, okay. I've been, been working on some similar concepts here in New York, not for business, just just for interest and, right. and public policy. Um, and as I understand it, at least here, okay. the lease covenants that the developer has with the lenders for the projects, so you're right. putting up a 100-story building, whatever it is, are such that they are there's a perverse financial incentive that if you can't rent out the retail space for a certain amount of money you get more back from them right. in rebates than you could get in rent from at a lower price so okay. as a result um buildings are financially incentivized to leave spaces vacant unless they can get an absolute top price for it i'd like to look at some way to make that illegal right because right. i think that that is what le- has led to you know, the article you sent me said one out of every seven storefronts in the UK is vacant. Um, I don't know the number in New York, but it doesn't feel any different. And uh, it feels worse than that yeah, in Manhattan, and, anyway. Yeah, in certain and, areas, and it leads to really bad outcomes, right? right? First of all, you're taking away jobs from people and tax revenue. But the blight, you know, uh, crime is both perception and reality, right? right? Perception generally does shape reality, but especially when it comes to crime, perception shapes reality. And when you have all these empty storefronts. Uh, you know, with homeless people sleeping outside and graffiti on it and everything else, it just encourages a, a culture of lawlessness that, that leads to crime and violence. And so um, I think that we, I think what the UK government is doing is great. And I think that the New York should find a way to follow on. Um, I've had some conversations with uh, the City Hall about that. And, you know, I'll continue to. It has been depressing that, I mean, we're, we're like, I don't know how many years we're into this kind of retail depression in, in New York City, but it's, you know, it's more than five years. Um, and, you know, you walk down Broadway and you just see, like, tons of empty storefronts. And I just don't understand why the market – I mean, I understand the phenomenon you're talking about, yeah. and, and that's obviously a, 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 type of, a type of development. But there are even little mom-and-pop small buildings and stuff. I mean, yeah, the problem I mean, is so – I mean, right. that's, that's a, a meaningful aspect of it, but it's not the only one, right. you know? Sometimes – look, the world also changes, so sometimes the – type of space available no longer fits the modern economy. Right. It's like when we got the space for the bookstore, there were tons of mom and pop spaces available. We needed at least 3,000 square feet yeah. to do what we wanted to do. No, it was interesting how, like, with all this space available, like, it was really hard to find yeah, one Yeah, it took fit. us a yeah. long time. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess we were picky, and I, th- I think what we got was ended up being perfect. Um, but, uh, yeah, so maybe some of that is the account of a changing economy. But I, I really do think that what the U.K. government is doing is right, and I, I would love to see leadership here in the U.S. step up and do the same. Um, did you end up seeing Dr. Strange yesterday? We did. You did. And? It's okay. Okay. Um, so I would say I'm not a huge Dr. Strange fan in general. I okay. didn't love the first one. Right. 
you know, this was all right. Um, the the thing about it that was cool is, you know, I find the multiverse concept interesting. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it's a whole movie about the multiverse. And he, here's the one thing that had me wondering, which is, okay, so let's say there's, we'll make this up, a hundred multiverses, so there's a hundred Hugos out there, right? Uh-oh. So in theory, they're all a manifestation of you, right? right? You're all linked to each other. But let's say you were actually able to become aware of the other 99. Do you think that you have this kinship with them, or do you think you end up ultimately developing rivalries with them because Hugo in this metaverse is doing a lot better than Hugo in that metaverse, and that met- the Hugo is doing worse? For sure there'd be rivalries. Jealous. So, yeah. Right. So it's funny how like we could end up at war with ourselves um, if the metaverse were a real thing. Right. I think that's really cool. You should write a movie about that. Yeah, exactly, because everything I'm writing so far is doing great. <laughs> um, are you in- interested in all the new Mike Myers show on Netflix? I don't even know what it is. Pentaveret? What is Do you it? like Mike Myers? The, the horror guy? Um, oh, the guy from Saturday Night Live? See, actually, Mike My- you don't know who Mike Myers is? Wayne's World? Yeah, Saturday Night Live guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I no, mean, I didn't like, like Wayne's World at all. Oh, okay. stupid. All right. Um, so I probably will not watch well, this. Here, but here's the thing. The, uh, the, the premise, the show's bad, but the premise has a certain Bradley Tusk valence to it. You ready? Yeah. Since the Black Plague in 1347, five men have been working to influence world events for the greater good. One unlikely Canadian journalist finds himself in the middle of a mission to expose the truth and in the process save the world. Well, if these five it's people goofy. are doing good, then why does the Canadian journalist need to save the world? Um, well, I guess they're not doing as much good as they, you know, think, hope. I don't know. I'm yeah. not, you know, I watched uh, about two minutes I'm, of it. I'm, I'm, I'm a pass on this one. Um, we're going to close with, well, some, some, I guess it's good bad news. It's good news that Vermont passed universal school meals. Yeah, um, it's great news. And you say we need the governor not to veto it. Why, yeah, is, why, so, is, that, why is that a risk? Uh, um, it's a Republican governor, so a, a maybe a— Wait, how does Vermont have a Republican governor? it's a weird state. It right. is extremely, extremely liberal. Right. But it's like, for example, super pro-gun rights. Right. right? It's very rural— and they are the state that more than any other has talked about seceding from the rest of the nation. And so as a result— That would um, be a bad move for Vermont. I can tell you I that right so now. I think so, too, yeah. yeah. But the, the, the politics, I think, are, are weird there. Um, and so we passed universal school meals, which would get 80,000 kids in Vermont, every kid, every district, regardless of anything else. You just come to school. You got breakfast. You get lunch. No questions asked. We passed it through the House. We passed it on Thursday or Friday through the Vermont Senate. Um, but there has been talk about the governor not supporting this bill. Um, we will fund aggressively an override campaign should he veto the bill. Okay. Um, I still hope that he won't, but he has raised concerns about cost and things like that. And I, I get it. I've been responsible for state budgets and had to balance them, so I, I understand. But it still just seems to me that, like, if you're making a list of what are the most important things to spend money on, feeding kids should be pretty high up there. And I guarantee there's... 5,000 different bureaucratic stupid things that they're not touching that they could cut instead. Uh, is there any update on mobile voting in uh, the D.C. City Council? I, uh, that story from last week was uh, pretty, pretty the guy awesome. Has, Alan has agreed to a meeting with our coalition late May, so uh, the pastors and others will be going in there. Um, but we will be keeping up the pressure, and, and should that meeting not go well, um, I think we've uncovered some stuff that will be pretty embarrassing to but, them. But that's good progress still. It's some progress. It's some progress. Okay. Yeah. Bradley, till next week. Thanks, man. Bye-bye.